You're listening to the Faith Roots Audio Podcast with Pastor Willie George. You can watch the full video version of this episode and join the conversation with your comments on the Faith Roots YouTube channel. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Now, here's Pastor Willie George with today's message. Welcome to the end from the beginning. This is episode 7. We're talking about the sequence that introduces the Antichrist. Somewhere he has to appear in the book of Genesis, and he does. Now, to lay a foundation for this type of teaching, I want to take you to Isaiah 46 and verse 10, New English Bible. I reveal the end from the beginning, from ancient times, I reveal what is to be. God isn't just saying that from the earliest days I foretold the future. He is saying that I laid down history in a particular order so you could see the end. Ecclesiastes 1.9 says this, The thing that has been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. There is no new thing after the sun. So here's the idea. Everything that happens in the end of days has already happened in a symbolic way, in a shadow form. These shadow forms came in a particular order. I see them in the book of Genesis as sequences, meaning that sometimes they are one chapter long, sometimes three chapters long, sometimes as long as five chapters, and sometimes as short as one. So we follow the sequences and we see that each of these sequences is reversed in the book of Revelation and in other end-time prophetic events. You can see it very clearly in the paradise sequence in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. You see in the book of Revelation chapter 21, chapter 22, the paradise that was lost restored. And it has amazing parallels to what happened in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So we can learn something about the order of end time events by taking a look at the order of the beginning. Now, Cain provides us a remarkable shadow of the false Messiah or the Antichrist. Now, let me explain where we're going with this. The loss of dominion by Adam is told in Genesis chapter 3. The regaining of that dominion is shared with us in Revelation chapters 19 and 20. We have the work of the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ, who comes to undo the work of the first Adam. And so what we see is this loss of dominion sequence and the regaining of it echoed in Genesis 3 and Revelation 19 and 20. The two of those are tied together. Since Cain and Abel follow the loss of dominion, we go to the book of Revelation and we take a look at the regaining of dominion and we ask ourselves what happened just before the regaining of dominion. Well, what happens just before Jesus taking charge of planet Earth in Revelation 19 and 20, we see the defeat of the Antichrist. The Antichrist then comes in the way that Cain came on the scene after the fall. 
we will take a careful look at Cain's life, and we're going to see some amazing parallels. Now, uh, Lightfoot, Bishop John Lightfoot, 1600s, amazing Bible scholar, thorough knowledge of Hebrew, Adam Clark, another old-timer uh, who has an amazing commentary. Uh, they say, as do all my other ancient sources, that Cain and Abel were born twins. And although your King James Bible uh, doesn't come right out and say this, the idea is there by the structure of the Hebrew. And Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bare a son named Cain. And it doesn't go into that detail when it comes to Abel. It says an Abel was born right after that. So uh, that is a Hebrew way of hinting that they were twins. It wouldn't surprise me. There are three sets of twins, counting Cain and Abel, in the book of Genesis. And uh, we have Jacob and Esau. We have Pharaohs and Zerah, the sons of Judah. And then, of course, we have Cain and Abel. And in every case, it is the second born that is favored over the older. Now, that's kind of a shocker because in the ancient world, they practiced this law of primogeniture, which means that the oldest son in every family in, uh, inherited the birthright, the right to lead the family, the spiritual leadership, the priesthood of the family, and most of the family's wealth. That doesn't mean that the second and third sons didn't get anything. They just didn't get anything like what the first son got. So God seems to prefer Abel over Cain. And we see this revealed in the rejection of the sacrifice that Cain brought to the Lord. Now, if we read this carefully, we're going to find out exactly why that sacrifice was rejected. And I've heard a number of teachings as to what the sacrifice was all about. Uh, some would teach that it was an offering to the Lord, uh, like us giving money. Uh, I, I think there's some lessons to be learned there, but that's not really what its purpose was. The purpose of those sacrifices was to point to the substitute. And one little thing I'm going to tell you here that'll help you study your Bible. When you're reading about someone in the Old Testament, always ask yourself, is there anything recorded about these people in the New Testament? And when it comes to Cain and Abel, there's a lot recorded in the New Testament. So I'm going to take you to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4 where it talks about the sacrifices of Cain and Abel. It says, by faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Now, this is hugely telling. This tells me that the sacrifices that they brought were not something that they came up with on their own. Anytime any person has faith, it is because they have heard the word of God. You cannot self-generate faith. Faith doesn't come just because you decide to have faith. The only way you can get faith is to hear the Word of God first. And so Abel must have heard the Word of God about the sacrifice. The reason is because we know he had faith to offer the right sacrifice. If he has faith to offer the right sacrifice, then it tells me that God told Cain and Abel, what he wanted and expected in the sacrifice. Abel obeyed, and so he brought a blood sacrifice of the lamb. Cain didn't. Cain brought something totally different. So it wasn't just a matter of him being confused or him on his own accord just trying to come up with something and he just gave the wrong gift. That isn't the idea at all. He knew what to bring, and he didn't bring it. 
He second-guessed God. He brought crops out of the ground. Now remember, after the sin of Adam, the ground was cursed. And so anything that Cain brings out of the ground is cursed because of its association with the ground. God doesn't want anything that's cursed. The other thing is this. Cain is working hard to bring this about. So here's what we see. Abel is bringing a blood sacrifice substitute. Cain is bringing his own work. And so if God receives the sacrifice of Cain, then he is making a statement for all time, I will save men on the basis of their own works. So if you wonder why Cain was rejected, it's because he wanted to be able to work his way into God's grace. It was his own idea, his own solution, in defiance of something that God had told both Cain and Abel to do. God is fair. God would never have expected them to bring the right sacrifice without telling them what to bring. He wanted to point them to the coming substitute, the sinless one. Now, how did God receive these sacrifices? At least five times in the Old Testament, there may be more because I'm finding others as I study, uh, God answered from heaven with fire to burn up sacrifices. In other words, uh, the most famous uh, illustration of this is Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Elijah prayed, God sent fire from heaven, burned up the sacrifice. But it happened on other occasions. And so most scholars believe that the way that the sacrifice was received, it had to be very clear. It had to be something that made Cain extremely jealous. It couldn't be just something Abel says, I feel like God answered me. And Cain says, well, I don't feel like that. It was clear. Everybody knew God favored Abel's sacrifice because he sent fire from heaven. Something very clear happened. Now, God saw that Cain was upset. So he begins to deal with him. And so we're going to read something from the literal Hebrew. God said to him, If you do well, shall you not be accepted? And if you do not well, a male is lying at the door, a sin offering. Now let me tell you how we get this. Hebrew has two different sexes or, or cases of, uh, of um, verbs and nouns. Some are feminine and some are masculine. That's one of the things I learned about Spanish. Spanish has both masculine and feminine nouns and both masculine and feminine verbs. So it's bad grammar, poor grammar, to begin with a feminine and give action to it with a masculine verb. And so the way that it's written in English, it gives us the idea that this feminine thing was acting in this masculine way. And, and let me explain it here. I'm going to read it to you. The word lying, as if an animal or something is lying down, is a masculine verb. But the word sin offering, which is one word in Hebrew, and it's kata. It is a feminine word, so it would never say a sin offering is lying at the door. Uh, the, the, verbs are, the verb and the noun don't match. One's feminine, one's masculine. So what God is saying to Cain here, an animal suitable to be offered as atonement for sin is now couching at the door of your fold. 
So God was not talking about sin like a beast couching at the door. He's saying there's a sin offering laying right here. You have easy access to a sin offering. He did. Abel had lambs. And Cain did not want to go to Abel to get a lamb because he didn't like it that Abel's offering was received. His wasn't. And so it would have been humiliating for him to go and ask Abel for a lamb. Now, God says to Cain, Unto thee shall be his desire. He's talking about Abel. And let me read this again more literally. That is, you shall ever have the right of primogeniture, and all things shall your brother be subject to you. God said this to Cain in order to take his anger away from Abel. He's saying, Cain, you're the firstborn. You'll lead the family. Abel will be subject to you. He will have to honor you. Do you not recognize you're in the superior position? So God was trying to take his wrath away. Cain would have none of it. He totally and completely rejected God's attempts to patch this up and to set it on the right path. So he lured Abel to a remote place, and he killed him in a way that most of us have never thought of. 1 John 3.12, this is Kenneth S. Wiest, or Kenneth Wiest, and uh, I love his translation. Not even as Cain, who was out of the pernicious one, and killed his brother by severing his jugular vein. We've always thought that uh, Cain killed Abel by hitting him with a club or slamming him on the head with a rock, but he slit his throat. He slit his jugular vein. The reason we know this is the Greek word for slay is a word that is used for the slitting of the throat. Now remember we said that Cain is a type of the Antichrist. Now, in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, we read when the Antichrist, who is the rider of the white horse, comes to power, suddenly we see this thing happening in his domain. I saw under the altar the souls that were slain for the word of God. Revelation 6, 9. And that word slain here means throat slit. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds us of what happened just a few years ago when ISIS was killing people in the Middle East by slitting their throats. And they were killing people in religious murders. In other words, they were killing Christians and killing anybody who supported Christians. And they slit their throats And that's how they cut their heads off. They eventually did cut their heads off. They didn't leave the head on the body. They went ahead and cut the whole head off. But they started from the front. Now, we know that Antichrist is going to behead people. We read about it elsewhere in the book of Revelation. And many of us may think about a guillotine or a big axe and chopping like this. But actually, it will probably be the slitting of the throat. So this is incredible. Uh, Because this type of religious killing is the law of first mention, first murder. And what is it? It's religious. And it's based upon a division of religious ideas. And it means that in the last days, Antichrist will do what he does, not just to get power, that's part of it, but he will do the things that he does because he has a religious animosity for people who do not believe like he does. And that's what you see in Cain. Cain had a totally different opinion of how you approach God. He wanted to tell God how it ought to be done. 
And when it wasn't done his way, he killed his own brother by slitting his throat. Well, we've got a whole lot more to say about this, and we'll pick it up in the next segment. See you then. about the Antichrist sequence. There's someone in the early days of the Bible who represents the Antichrist, gives us a great picture of him. There's more than one person. But in the early times in Genesis, when it's all laid out in order, the person who most fits the picture of Antichrist is Cain. Now, Cain's behavior after God dealt with him and after he killed his brother, it foreshadows tribulation events. First of all, when uh, Cain was confronted by God, he refused to repent. And God uh, showed him the consequences of an unrepentant sin. He said to Cain, a fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be in the earth. In other words, God's saying when you, you sin and you don't deal with it, you'll run the rest of your life. You'll always be running. You, you, you'll live in fear. You'll always be looking over your shoulder. Uh, because you've run from your problems. You can't deal with this effectively by running from it. And so God said to him, a fugitive and a vagabond, vagabond, you'll be in the earth. What's crazy is Cain is willing to do this. Uh, Genesis 4, 13 and 14, Cain said to the Lord, my iniquity is greater than may be forgiven. I'm too, I'm too far gone to change. That's what he's saying. Behold, you have driven me out this day from the face of the earth and from thy face I shall be hid. Wow. Now as I was reading those words, I, I couldn't help but think about a place in the book of Revelation where there are people who do not repent of their sins and who are dropping off the face of the earth in order to hide from the Lord. Let me read it to you. It's uh, the book of Revelation chapter 6, verses 15, 16, 17. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So instead of repenting and running to God, these guys are running away from God. They have become fugitives and vagabonds. Now, Cain admittedly says, God, I, I will do this. I'm, I, I accept this. And uh, Genesis 4.14, he said, I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. In other words, he doesn't pray and say, Lord, don't let me be a fugitive and a vagabond. He didn't say that. He said, that's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be that. There's no hope for me. And uh, listen to how that contrasts with David when he was uh, a sinner, when he sinned a great sin, the sin with Bathsheba, which was adultery, and it was followed by murder, the murder of her husband. Uh, Psalm 51.11, Moffat's translation, this is what David said. Banish me not from thy presence, deprive me not of thy sacred spirit. David didn't want to leave the presence of the Lord. That's the one thing he feared the most. I do not want to be shut out from the presence of the Lord. Now, Cain is like these people 
who is who are hiding from the face of God, but then he did something even more. He asked for death. Now this is what we see with uh, Bishop John Lightfoot and from Adam Clark. Now therefore let it be that anyone who finds me may kill me. Now it, it almost looks like in your King James that Cain is saying, somebody's going to kill me. He's actually asking for it. And uh, what God did is he set a mark on Cain to keep Cain from being killed for what he had done. And it reminds me of uh, Revelation chapter 9, verse 6. In those days men shall seek death, shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. So this is what God does. Uh, Genesis 4, 15, the Lord appointed Cain a token, a sign, to convince him that no person should be permitted to slay him. Adam Clark writes that. And that's his translation of Genesis 4, 15. And the idea is that God wants Cain to live long to consider the murder that he committed, to think about what he has done, and also to repent. And if Cain dies right away, then he's gone into eternity without God. Uh, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So he wants Cain to have a little time to perhaps repent, because once you leave the body, your fate is sealed. And so God put this mark on Cain to keep him from being murdered. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Cain uh, has a mark on him that comes from God. Antichrist has a mark uh, that he puts on other people. Actually, the false prophet is the one who initiates that. That mark brings death, but God's mark was designed to bring about life and to save life. That's different, but both of them had a mark. So in these sequences that we see in early Genesis and then later reflected in the book of Revelation, sometimes they are the same thing or similar things. Other times they are reversals. So we have a good mark in Genesis and a bad mark in Revelation. And that's what you see. And so that sometimes there are reversals. You see the reversal where there is the loss of dominion in uh, Genesis chapter 3 and the regaining of that dominion in Revelation chapters 19 and 20. And uh, so that's what you see. There are reversals. And God is doing some amazing things here in early Genesis to lay down an order to show us how the things of the end are going to unfold. Now, by slaying Abel, Cain did something else. He ended the sacrificial offerings. You may not have thought about this, but after Cain uh, killed Abel, there were no sacrificial offerings again until after the flood of Noah. So for that period of time, say probably about 1,400 years, there was no animal sacrifice. And the reason that God set up the animal sacrifice in the first place is that he wanted men to see the only way you can find salvation is through the death of an innocent substitute. Cain had a totally different way of thinking he is basically saying to God, I deserve to be saved. I work hard. I bring you what I did out of the earth. Abel is saying, I don't deserve salvation. I put my faith in the sacrifice that you, Lord, demanded. And we know that it was the Lord who demanded that blood sacrifice based upon Hebrews 11.4. Now, 
Antichrist is going to take away the sacrifice. And here's where Cain is a picture of the Antichrist. This is Daniel chapter 9, New King James Version, verse 27. Then he, the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant or make a treaty with many in Israel for one week or for a seven-year period. It's symbolic. Uh, That's what the word week means here. But in the middle of the week, that means three and a half years in, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. So that means then in the not-too-distant future, if we're right, there will be a restoration of temple worship. Blood sacrifices will be offered again. I'm not saying we'll see that, but it is coming. And the Antichrist will come along and he will take it away. Listen to what it says. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out upon the desolate. It's called the abomination of desolation. Now Jesus talked about the abomination of desolation. And he said it would come in Jerusalem in the end times. And here it is, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. In this part of Matthew, Jesus is not speaking to the church. And I'll show you very clearly here in verse 16 that he's not speaking to the church. He says in verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now that's not us. We're not in Judea. And fleeing to the mountains isn't going to help us at all. That's not our answer. God has a different program for us. So in this particular part of Matthew 24, Christ is not addressing us. He is addressing a totally different group of people. And he is describing the abomination of desolation, which is Antichrist doing his thing, and he is presenting himself in the temple to be God, and he does it by stopping the sacrifice. Listen to what Paul said about this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now, brothers, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or be troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us as though the day of Christ had come. So Paul has said, someone sent you a letter. They forged our name. They told you that you were already in the seven years of tribulation. Or someone may have prophesied that after the letter was received. That means the spirit, a false spirit, brought this about. Or someone may have taught this or preached this. or That's the word. So word, letter, and spirit were the three false ways of communication. Now that doesn't mean that good things can't be communicated by spirit and word and letter. But in this instance... There were people making a concerted effort to take the faith of the Thessalonians away from believing in a rapture of the church. Let no one deceive you by any means for that day, the day of the Lord, that's the day of judgment, will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Those are code words for the Antichrist. What does he do? Verse 4 who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, 
so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So Antichrist is going to take away the sacrifice out of the temple. He's going to tell the Jewish people, there is no reason for you to do this because I am God and you worship me. You don't do these other things. And so that's what we see is the work of the Antichrist. Now, the Apostle Paul not only foretells this event, but he lays out the order of when it happens. And he says it cannot happen until we have been gathered to the Lord. And so he says, don't let anybody deceive you. Why would the church at Thessalonica be deceived? Because they were being heavily persecuted. There are parts of the church today in the world that are receiving heavy persecution. Certain places in Africa, it's dangerous to be a Christian. Certain places right now in Europe, it's dangerous to be a Christian. There are Christians being persecuted right now heavily in China. They might think that they are in the tribulation by what they are experiencing. But Paul said the tribulation does not come until after there is a gathering to the Lord and then the man of sin has to be revealed. He will go into the temple and tell the whole world that he's God. So we see this being pictured ahead of time in Cain. Cain is an amazing picture of the Antichrist. And in our next lesson, we're going to get into all the different ways that he fits the bill. We'll see you then. Well, we're going to wrap up episode seven with this section. Before we get into it, I want to remind you again of what we're basing our teaching on. And I hope you'll remember this verse and mark it in your Bible. It's Isaiah 46.10. This is the New English Bible. And here it says, I reveal the end from the beginning. From ancient times, I reveal what is to be. And then here God says in Ecclesiastes 1.9, The thing that has been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. Now here's the idea. The idea is the book of Genesis contains sequences. Some are several chapters long, some just one chapter long, some two chapters long. But these sequences foreshadow events of the end times and in a particular order. So what we've covered so far is there is a sequence for paradise. That would be Genesis 1 and 2. We see it in Revelation 21 and 22. You've got so many things that are parallels between those two places. Then we see the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. We see the restoration of man's dominion in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, chapter 20, 
It's the work of the second Adam, who's talked about in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus is the second Adam. And why would he be called the second Adam? Because he's only the second human being to walk the earth who was totally freed from sin. Adam was the first one. Jesus was the second one. He had a perfect human body, meaning he was not mortal. He had to yield to death in order to die. Death would not have taken Jesus by old age or by any other method had he not yielded to death. He had to surrender to death, and he did that freely of his own volition and choice so that we could be saved and redeemed from death. So that we see the second Adam undid the work of the first Adam. That's the sequence. Now, if we follow the sequence, we come to Genesis chapter 4, and we see this man named Cain, who is a picture of somebody in the end of days. If we want to find out who that somebody is, we go all the way to the book of Revelation. We back up from the paradise sequence in in Revelation chapters 21-22. We back away from the second Adam sequence in Revelation chapters 19 and 20. And we come into the sequence of uh, Revelation 18 and then part of 19 where this character named Antichrist comes to his end. So this would link Cain with the Antichrist. If that is the case, there should be a number of amazing parallels associated with these two. So let's take a look at it. The Bible says that Cain was of the wicked one, meaning that even though he may have had parents who believed in God, uh, it it talks about him being of the devil, of the wicked one. Uh, This is what it says about Antichrist, 2 Thessalonians 2.8, and then shall that wicked be revealed. So the Antichrist is one who probably had some knowledge of God and turned and became very, very wicked. He is of the devil. Cain slit his brother's throat. The Antichrist, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. And remember that Antichrist is working in the Middle East, and what we have seen is death by the slitting of the throat, cutting off heads. That's how Cain killed Abel, and that's 1 John 3.12 in the Weist translation, the key word there is he slew his brother. And that word is from a word that means a sacrificial slaughter by the slitting of the jugular vein. Cain stopped the blood sacrifices. Daniel 9, 27 says that Antichrist will stop the sacrifices in the temple when he is in power. Uh, Cain willingly left God's presence, so will the Antichrist. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 1.9. This is the ISV. Such people will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction by being separated from the Lord's presence and from His glorious power. So this is speaking about the Antichrist spirit in the earth, and uh, these are the people who follow Him, and they want to get out of the presence of the Lord. They don't want to be around it at all. And that's what you see with Cain. He didn't want to be in the presence of the Lord. Cain did not repent, nor will the Antichrist and those who follow him. Revelation 9.21, Neither repented they of their murders, 
nor of their sorceries. And by the way, the word sorcery there is pharmakeia. It means one who enchants with the use of drugs. This is not talking about just ordinary witchcraft. It's talking about uh, using drugs to take people into a spiritual realm, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. This, these are the four prominent sins of Revelation. Revelation 16.9, they repented not. Revelation 16.11, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they repented not of their deeds. So you see, Cain refused to repent. He set a pattern for the people of the book of Revelation who refused to repent. In the law of first mention is Cain's wrath, and that's found in Genesis 4 and verse 5. And we said to you that the law of first mention is that when a particular thing is introduced for the very first time, it foreshadows other times when those same things will happen again, but even more significantly. So the wrath of Cain is revealed in Genesis 4-5, but in Revelation chapter 6, verse 17, for the great day of God's wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? So you see the wrath of Cain in Genesis 4. You see the wrath of God all through the book of Revelation. Uh, Cain prayed that he might die, as do the followers of Antichrist. And, and this is what we see. It's not clear in the way it's written in the King James, but the literal translation is, is uh, uh, let those who find me kill me. And what he was referring to is that in those days when someone was murdered, uh, their family members had the right to come and kill the murderer, and it was the avenger of blood. And uh, you see that talked about in the law of Moses. And uh, Cain uh, said, just let me die, but God wouldn't let him die. So God set a mark on Cain that was intended to extend his life now, Antichrist has a mark, and that mark is put on people, not by Antichrist so much as by uh, the false prophet. And so I want to read to you from Revelation chapter 13. Antichrist has a partner in crime, and uh, here he is. Uh, Revelation 13, verses 15, 16, 17, 18. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should spoke, both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So there's something that will happen technologically that will allow uh, the, the Antichrist and his false prophet to create an image that has intelligence. This is uh, perhaps an AI uh, invention. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand, or on their foreheads. So now we know this is more than just a tattoo, that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So this would imply that there's something intelligent about this mark. And verse 18, here's wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, his number is 666. Now, all through Scripture, 6 is considered the number of a man. You've got Goliath who comes out to David. Uh, he has six pieces of armor. His spear's head weighs 600 shekels of iron. And uh, we, we see that his height was six cubits and a span. 
we see when uh, Nebuchadnezzar built the image and commanded all of his leaders to worship it. It was six cubits wide, 60 cubits high, and worshiped when six musical instruments were played. So we see six as the number of a man, a man in rebellion against God. Pharaoh went out against Moses and the children of Israel with 600 chariots. So anytime you see that number six, it's like a man who has fallen short of the glory of God. Seven is the number of the Holy Spirit in the earth, God's presence in the earth, the number of fullness, the number of completion, it's a blessed number. It's a perfect number. You can't divide it and come up with a whole number. Uh, seven divided by two or three doesn't give you another whole number. So in that sense, it's a perfect number. And that's why it's a picture of God's Holy Spirit and perfection in the earth. That's what seven is about, or the number of a cycle, completion. That's why we have a seven-day week. Now, six is one short of that. And so uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why six is the number of a man. The Antichrist will have a number that somehow will be associated with 666. Now, let me give you a couple of possibilities. You've probably heard this a hundred times, but the Hebrew and the Greek both used both numbers and letters with, uh, out of one. In other words, the, the, the letters were also numbers. And so anything that was written in Hebrew and Greek uh, as a name or a noun or a verb, anything written, any word written, it had a numerical value. It is interesting that all of the names that are associated with Jesus, the name Jesus, for instance, in Greek, the numerical value of his name, 888. Eight is the number of new beginnings. It's the musical scale, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do, eight. Eight souls began a new world. So eight is starting over. And you see eight associated with every single title of the Messiah. Every name of Christ in Greek or Hebrew is always divisible by eight. On the other hand, these bad players and bad characters are very often identified by the number 6 or by the number 13, which is the number of rebellion. Antichrist will have a number of 666, that's three sixes. Three is the number of God, six is the number of man, so three sixes is, here's a guy who declares himself to be God. And that's what the numerical symbolism represents. He will do that literally. And that's what you see here in the book of Revelation chapter 13. Now, God set a mark on Cain, Antichrist will have his own mark. When Cain left the presence of the Lord, this is something we hadn't talked about, he went out and did something. Genesis 4, verses 16 and 17. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, and he built a city. And he called the name of the city after his son. Now, listen to Psalm 49, 11. And this is from Psalms in the Book of Common Prayer. And yet they think that their house shall continue forever, and that their dwelling places shall endure from one generation to another, and they call the lands after their own name. In other words, Psalms tells us that evil people will always name things after themselves because they think they will last forever. That's something that's very egotistical. Uh, so that's Psalm 49.11. Cain thought that he was going to live forever, but we read that his family lasted only six generations. So another thing here is at the end of the age, there's a city 
that is associated with the Antichrist. And it's called Babylon the Great. Let me read to you about Babylon the Great. This is found in the book of Revelation, chapter 18. Let's begin reading with verse 1. After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place for demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, lest you receive of her plagues. So these cities are so big, so great, that, that even godly people could possibly live in them. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities, render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works, in the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I said as a queen, I am no widow, I will not see sorrow. Therefore her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. Now pay attention to these things. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise any more. Now we're going to skip down to verse 17, because this is very telling. Revelation eighteen seventeen. For in one hour great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who travel by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance. And they cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? Then they threw dust on their heads, and they cried out, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she is made desolate. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Now, in her, verse 24, was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. Now, this is fascinating to me. This city is representative of the city that Antichrist built. This big city is uh, in rebellion against God. It's a place where kings came and went. Number two, it's a place where merchants traded. Verses 17, 18, 19 describe global merchants. In other words, these people don't have a country. They're on ships. They're in the waters. They're not loyal to a particular nation. They're loyal to making money. And that's what we see today. These big multinational corporations who no longer care about a particular nation. They want to go global. The thing that speaks to them is money. 
They are not patriotic. They do not care about the welfare of a nation. They're all about trade, making money, and for that reason, they're pictured as men who are floating on the sea. They're not attached to a particular country. And you see that in Revelation 17, 18, 19, uh, chapter 18. You see decisions that are made in this city that result in the murder of innocent people. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain in the earth. So what city is this? Well, you're going to have to draw your own conclusions, but I would say this. I think we have some clues. It's a city where lots of political leaders come and do business. It's a city where there is great trade. Now, we have some cities around the world that are known for government. And, uh, for instance, the, uh, the International Court is in The Hague in the Netherlands, but it's not a great trading center. Uh, so we see other places where there may be smaller allegiances, where the city has a lot of government, uh, but, but here we see a city where kings come from all over the earth, and decisions are made that affect the destinies of men and they result in people being slain. Um, it could very well be prophetic of the United Nations. And uh, there's certainly a number of parallels here. And it could be many cities. There might be more than one. This could be a representative city. Uh, some people suggest there will be a literal Babylon rebuilt. If there is, it'll have to really get going. But this city, whatever it is, is going to be judged and we see the shadow of this city all the way back in Genesis 4 when Cain went out, built a city, and called it after the name of his son because he's thinking we will live forever, not realizing that they wouldn't last but six generations. And I'm not saying it's a sin to name your business after your family name. There's nothing wrong with that. But the idea that you are trying to create a memory that will last forever, you're wasting your time. You'll be forgotten in a few years, trust me. It's all the time we have for this one. We'll pick up with episode eight in our next series. I hope you'll stay tuned for that. Thanks. I want to thank you for watching our podcast today. And if you really liked it, would you please give us a little thumbs up by clicking on that sign down below. And then I would encourage you to subscribe to our channel so you don't miss any of our future podcasts because they're all going to be good. And if you would like to support us financially, either with a one-time gift or recurring gift, you can do that by clicking on the link below or going to myfaithroots.com. Thank you so much for watching this program. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. Ratings and reviews help us reach more people. So take a moment to leave a review on your podcast app and consider sharing an episode with a friend or family member that needs to be built up and encouraged in the Lord today.